we even have sayings like I'll rest when I'm dead, you know, right. like, which is right. like, okay, well, you'll die a lot sooner and you'll have a more chance right. to rest in that case. So, right. so yeah, it's, um, it's a good thing to be aware of that there's a value for rest just for rest's sake, but rest mm-hmm. is also the conduit to better performance, better productivity, more joy, more pleasure, mm-hmm. and, you know, all the things that we want more of in life. Hello and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this episode, I sit down with Chris Kresser, who's a leading clinician and top educator in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health. Chris is also the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure, among other books, and he's appeared regularly in the media, including The Dr. Oz Show and Vox and Friends, as well as some top-rated health podcasts like The Broken Brain, The Doctor's Pharmacy, and The Ultimate Health Podcast. In 2015, Chris founded the Cresser Institute to provide the next generation of functional health practitioners and coaches with the skills and tools that they need in order to turn the tide of chronic disease and change the future of medicine. Through this institute, he also created and launched the ADAPT Practitioner and Health Coach Training Programs, which train health professionals around the world in his unique approach. Chris was one of the very first people who introduced me to functional medicine, and I recommend his book, Unconventional Medicine, about reinventing healthcare frequently. I was really excited to sit down with him to learn more about HPA axis dysfunction in this conversation, especially as it pertains to type A personalities and the CrossFit population. We talked a lot about how stress, both good and bad, can impact the body, some strategies to implement for successful behavior change, and how HPA axis dysfunction differs from adrenal fatigue. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Now, let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Chris Kresser and... um, we just met, and I have not told you yet, but you were probably the first introduction that I had to functional medicine. So thank you so much for that. I um, I remember when I had started doing CrossFit, I started to hear your name and see some of the things that you were putting out. And that's when just sort of the the term functional medicine, I think, was planted in my head. And since then, it's become you know a big part of what I want to do and how I've think about practicing medicine. So thank you for all the work that you do. And thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. Um, And you write and speak about so many different topics in functional medicine, but I was hoping that today we could really dig into HPA axis dysfunction. Um, This is something that I think, you know, my audience is primarily those who are doing CrossFit and Mm -hmm. we have a tendency to be overly intense in all areas of life and are exceptionally prone to um, something like HPA axis dysfunction. So I'd love to just dig into what it is and help to educate um, listeners about it. So maybe we could just start off with what the HPA axis is and how is it normally functioning when we're healthy? Sure. That's a great point that I never thought of before. There's definitely some selection bias with CrossFit audience that they're not just going to be drawn to intense physical activity, but probably intense activities of all sorts that absolutely might, might affect you, the HPA axis. I think if you pull them, they're the people who are 
working really hard. They have families. They've got other side right. things they're working on. Probably yeah. not sleeping enough. So yes, yeah. definitely. So that's a that's a good entry point. I mean the the simplest way to think about the HPA axis. First of all, that stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So these are all glands in the body, hormone producing glands, and they play a number of roles, but the primary role that this axis plays is uh, determining our response to stress, um, governing our response to stress. And it's also the system that is primarily affected by stress. So some simple analogies that everybody's familiar with would be a battery. You know, if, if you think of the HP axis of, as your battery, um, there are things that we can do that run the battery down and there are things that we can do that charge the battery, or you can use the bank account analogy, you know, where when you're making deposits in a bank account, you're replenishing it. And when you're uh, under a lot of stress, let's say you're, you're making withdrawals on that bank account. And in the case of either a battery or a bank account, I think we all know that what happens if you uh, make many more uh, withdrawals than deposits, that's not going to end well. Mm -hmm. If you run down the battery uh, over and over again without recharging it, that's not going to end well either. So uh, the HPA axis is the system that we need to be thinking about in terms of uh, how we manage the stress um, in our lives that we can't avoid and how we think about reducing the stress in our lives that we can avoid. Mm -hmm. And then, you, you know, you mentioned taking out too many withdrawals or running down the battery. What happens to our HP axis when we are exposed to, to chronic stress and we don't have enough recharging or um, putting enough money in that bank account? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I think of things from an evolutionary perspective and in an ancestral environment, our, our stress response was relatively binary. So, you know, let's say we were, um, in a, uh, you know, in a violent struggle for resources with a neighboring mm -hmm. tribe, or let's say we were out on the Savannah and then we real, you know, we saw something in our peripheral vision that was a predator stalking mm -hmm. us or, um, we're dealing with some, you know, food scarcity or some other kind of acute stressful situation. And, and what happens there, and I'm sure all of your listeners have heard the term fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or sometimes it's called fight or flight or freeze. Those are really kind of the three basic responses that our HPA axis and stress response system is geared for. So, you know, we're either going to run away or we're mm -hmm. going to fight or we're going to freeze and hope that whatever's tracking us doesn't see us if we <laughs> stop moving. And of course, you know, most of us are not living in that kind of environment today, but, but, but that's what our genes and our biology are, are wired for. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole set of things that happen in that fight or flight or freeze response, which is when the sympathetic nervous system is activated. We experience an increase in heart rate. We experience an increase in pumping of, of oxygen uh, or blood from our heart and oxy oxygenation. Um, we experience, you know, more blood flowing to our peripheral uh, tish tissues so that we can, you know, our muscles so we can mobilize a, an effective response. If we are going to fight, mm -hmm. uh, we experience increased blood flow to the brain. 
um, which is actually, I think something that can be kind of addictive about the stress response. We can Mm. talk about that later. Um, and all of these responses are what we would call adaptive in the short term, meaning they actually would help us to survive an acute stressful event. Um, maybe the modern day analog would be, we we've, we've heard stories of like someone who let's like the car backed up over their foot or even their kid or something. And they, they managed to lift up the car and, you know, free their foot or their kid or whatever in an act of like almost impossible strength that's due Mm -hmm. to the stress response. You know, that's, that's uh, the adrenaline that's coursing through us that enable enables that kind of activity. So that's all fine in an acute stressful situation, because then what happens is the body after that stressful event passes, the body returns to what we call homeostasis, which is basically just kind of the baseline. And there's really no problem with anything that I've said so far. The Mm -hmm. problem comes when stressful events are chronic Mm -hmm. and you get a chronic activation of that sympathetic nervous system. And, um, and an underactivation of the flip side, which is the parasympathetic nervous system or what we call rest and digest. So if you're constantly having an increase in your heart rate, you're constantly having this intense blood flow to the brain, you're constantly experiencing a clenching of the muscles, you're constantly experiencing a diversion of resources away from your, your digestive system and your endocrine system, because in an acute stressful situation, your body doesn't care about digesting the next meal. It doesn't care about reproduction. It doesn't mm-hmm. care about anything that's required for long-term growth and repair. If you, if you're all day, you know, because you're driving in traffic, you're overtraining, you're not sleeping enough, you're dealing with financial stress, your, your sympathetic nervous system is getting aroused and activated all day long, every day, then that's going to take a, a really significant toll on the body. And I think that's essentially what it, the state that many of us are living in, in modern, you know, 21st century industrialized world. Yes, absolutely. All of the little things, whether it's the technology that we have, that's constantly reminding us or taking our attention or just the busy lifestyle that we lead or feeling like we have to always be doing something, um, yeah. and making progress that, that's sort of and then you, culture. and then you add a global pandemic, mm-hmm. um, over which we have very little control. So, you know, one of the, the major triggers of stress is a feeling of helplessness and a lack of control. So mm-hmm. it, you know, with pandemic, of course, we have, we can take some uh, actions that, that can either protect us or not protect us. We have some level of control, but we don't, nobody has control over the, the entire thing. And so that, you know, adds a whole nother layer of uh, stress, um, even for people who are, you know, everyone's experiencing it differently, right? Mm-hmm. But even for people who are in a relatively good a secure position with their job or, you know, haven't had any uh, serious issues there, that background level of threat that's there mm-hmm. uh, as something that we can't control is affecting, I think, almost everybody. And I, I've seen that in my clinical practice. We've seen people, you know, exacerbations of pe- current illnesses trigger, mm-hmm. tr- you know, new symptoms being triggered, old symptoms that people hadn't experience in a long time coming up again. So that's been very common over the last year. And I think stress is a big factor there. For sure. And I think a lot of times we're not great at um, 
understanding our own perceived stress and thinking like, okay. And also it sort of becomes normal. And sometimes we don't realize how much stress we're under until maybe it goes away. Um, and, and then seeing, wow, this, this has actually had a huge impact on me, even though I quote unquote felt okay. And that's an evolutionary response as well. You know, it's it's us trying to adapt to Mm -hmm. our circumstances and be able to survive them. So that's a positive trait in some ways, but if we don't have a mechanism, like you said, for checking in and determining uh, the level of stress that we're under and and taking steps to mitigate it, then that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. So talking about types of stressors, you know, we mentioned a lot of the the psychological stressors and physical, like you said, maybe overtraining or um, physical demands, but are there other types of stressors that can affect, that can kind of all pile up to affect this HPA axis? Yeah. Um, so the, the acronym nuts, which is, a, it turns out to be a pretty good one is a, is a good way of understanding the the types of, uh, psychological or emotional stressors that, that, that impact us or the categories at least. So, mm-hmm. you know, novelty, um, it can be something that's both appealing to humans, but also stressful. Uh, cause mm-hmm. if we don't understand it, that's un- uncertain and that, that could be a threat. So that's the next one is uncertainty or unpredictability. Um, that's COVID-19, you know, no yeah. way that we knew uh, some people might've been able to predict it, but most of us didn't know it was coming. <laughs> right. Um, T is threat to the ego. So we're, we're social animals, you know, primarily. So anything that threatens our competence or our feeling of self-sufficiency or our status in the social hierarchy is a, is a stressful thing for us. And then a uh, sense of control, which we already mm. talked about feeling like if we feel like we don't have any control or ability to affect the outcome of a situation, that's a really stressful thing. So, so in the psychological, emotional realm, I think the NUTS acronym is really good uh, for, for understanding the categories. And then, um, you know, something that's, that should be on the radar of, of all of your listeners is, is overtraining. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it seems a little ridiculous to be talking about this, it, given the, the epidemic of, of physical inactivity, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I've had, I've talked to, the, to some people about this and they're like, come on, you know, like <laughs> how big of There's- a problem is it? Well, it's a big problem for some people. Right. And probably right. the people that, that are listening to this are, are much more likely to be dealing with mm-hmm. overtraining than undertraining. Right. Yeah. And so, what happens with overtraining is very similar to uh, what I described with any other kind of stressor. Training is a form of stress. And if it's done right, it's, it's, it's eustress, which is E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. So eustress mm-hmm. is a form of stress that is actually adaptive and beneficial. And so I want to be clear about this. Not all stress is bad. And in fact, stress you could argue is a primary driver of our evolution and, mm-hmm. and our growth. And I would say that over the long term scale and also the short term scale, like we've all had experiences, of challenges in our lives that have pushed us to grow and change. And that's, that's a good thing. That's eustress, mm-hmm. but distress is what happens when our capacity to tolerate a given amount of stress is exceeded, whether that's physical, you know, emotional or psychological. So with overtraining, um, well, let me just go back to understanding how training is stressed. So if, if let's say you're doing a squat mm-hmm. and, 
uh, you, you reach a certain number of repetitions where you can't, you fail, you, mm -hmm. you can no longer perform another repetition. What's happening there is muscle fibers are breaking down mm -hmm. and, um, then you go away and you, if you rest adequately, those muscle fibers will be reconstructed essentially mm -hmm. and rebuilt stronger than they were before. Because from, again, from an evolutionary perspective, the body's saying, Hey, that was a, a thing that we failed at and that's mm -hmm. a threat and a challenge to our survival. So we better, you know, strengthen those muscles so that if we meet that challenge again, we're going to be successful in overcoming it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's essentially how any form of, uh, of training works. Now, the problem arises as I'm sure everyone who's listening has experienced at least once when you don't leave adequate time for recovery then you don't not only don't you know improve and mm -hmm. grow the muscles or improve oxygen uh, capacity or whatever you're trying to do, you may not even get back to baseline. So you may mm -hmm. actually see a decline in performance over time, mm -hmm. and so that would be like a key signal of overtraining is that you're not in improving over time or you're plateauing and you can't get over that plateau or, or you're even declining. Uh, some of the other major uh, signs of overtraining that I see in my work with people, and I do work with a lot of CrossFit athletes uh, mm -hmm. in, our, in our practice and athletes of all kinds, very high level um, athletes all the way down to recreational. Um, sleep is probably one of the biggest mm -hmm. uh, benchmarks. And so quality of sleep declining, like you know, restless, not, not getting deep sleep, uh, folks who are using their Wara ring or some other sleep tracking device, see a decline in their uh, amount of deep sleep that they're getting, um, muscle ache, muscle fatigue, uh, digestive symptoms, which kind of is maybe surprising, but that's part of the nervous system, the digestive mm -hmm. system. And so when the HPA axis is getting really impacted by stress, a lot of people will experience, uh, digestive issues. You can sometimes start to see anxiety, depression, uh, cognitive decline, um, which can be related to changes in hormones like mm -hmm. testosterone for men or uh, uh, usually estrogen, progesterone for women. Um, so those are kind of the major ones that would start to raise the red flag and, and let us know that overtraining might be a factor. Wow. Um, and you mentioned already just some of the symptoms and, and different or different disease states that this could contribute to. I know Obviously, obviously stress is linked to a lot of, uh, different types of disease. Um, but other than overtraining, like physical overtraining, um, and psycholo psychological stress, are there other, um, leading to some of the symptoms you just mentioned are that, well, how is it linked to some of the other diseases that you might see? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, the, the, the interesting question is like, is there a disease that stress is not linked is that to? Linked to? Yeah. So far I have not been able to find mm -hmm. one. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, that makes sense when you understand the physiology of, of stress and the impact that it has on mm -hmm. every system of the body, uh, the nervous system, the gastrointestinal system, the endocrine system, the cardiovascular system in mm -hmm. particular, um, and the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, if, if that's true, which it is, and there's, you know, that's well-established and not controversial at all. There's really no cell in the body 
that's not going to be impacted by stress. So uh, we know, for example, that stress is a major trigger for autoimmune disease. And I actually have come to believe that stress is a bigger trigger even than diet for, for mm-hmm. autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say diet's not important. I think it's mm-hmm. critical, but um, if there was one kind of common element that I often see in the story, like when I see a new patient, I'll take a very detailed history and almost without exception, prior to the onset of autoimmune disease in, mm-hmm. in, in a patient was a very stressful event. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that stressful event can be a positive stress, like the birth of a child, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but other times it's something more, you know, that we might typically more associate with stress, like loss of a job or ending of a relationship or some big mm-hmm. financial event or some, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, if we think about it with the, with the immune system, um, you know, there's research going back decades that show, you know, initially before autoimmune disease was, was common, there were studies looking at, uh, university students, you know, leading up to an exam and -hmm. they would find that they were, you know, orders of magnitude more likely to get a cold or a flu or something yes. when they were studying for midterms and finals. And anyone who's, who's been to college probably I think we've all experienced that, that yeah. That. <laughs> or, or graduate school or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and then there are studies on the flip side that show that like listening to classical music or playing, you know, doing things that are relaxing can actually replenish and restore the immune system and strengthen immune function. Um, you know, there are entire books that have been written on the impact of stress and the immune system in terms of immune defense against, you know, pathogens mm-hmm. like viruses. Um, more recently, there's been study on how stress impacts immune balance, which is more of a factor with autoimmunity, right? Mm-hmm. So where, where stress aggravates uh, the immune system to the point where the immune system starts to uh, attack self antigens, you know, like mm-hmm. proteins inside of the body that shouldn't be seen as foreign, but are now mm-hmm. being seen as foreign because of this stress response. Uh, in terms of cardiovascular health, I mean, I think this is one of the biggest concerns because heart disease is still the number one mm-hmm. killer. One, you know, hypertension is uh, the proximal cause of heart disease in many people. So, you, the, you know, some scientists like to say that, that hypertension is really the number one cause of death because uh, uh, that it's, you know, the primary driver of heart, heart attacks and stroke. Mm-hmm. And so managing your blood pressure is probably one of the best things that you can do to reduce your risk of, you know, early death from cardiovascular disease. And, I would also say, just like I said, that stress, I think, is a bigger factor than diet uh, for autoimmune disease, at least in some people, that stress may be also a bigger factor in terms of hypertension than diet Mm -hmm. for some people. So, for example, in my patient population or even, you know, in the people that you work with and are listening to you, that's my guess, because Mm -hmm. if anyone in that population has high blood pressure, it's probably not because they're eating you know, really crappy food, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe for some, but Mm -hmm. if you're on a really clean diet and your blood pressure is still high, the very first place that I'm going to look is stress and stress management. And I've seen people through, you know, mindfulness and meditation practice and breathing techniques and integrating some restorative yoga or, or Tai Chi, Qigong, things like that, Mm -hmm. drop their blood pressure 
faster and more significantly than, mm-hmm. you know, taking two or three different medications. So, um, you know, those are a few examples of, of how stress can affect the different systems of the body and, and diseases that are plaguing us today. It's amazing. And it's incredible just the, what you shared about finding that stress may be a bigger factor than diet in some of these conditions. And I think, I don't know if you'd be able to share how you approach this with patients and from a behavior change perspective, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of times it's easier for people to say, okay, I can make these changes to my diet. That's something I have control over and I can do, but um, trying to make changes to help decrease stress or add more rest and digest time can be a lot more difficult and harder to get um, real buy-in from people. So how do you approach that? Or yeah. how do you kind of measure and check in with patients on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are a few different ways. Uh, number one, I've, as you, I'm sure know, I'm a big advocate of health coaching and, um, this is one of the main reasons why is that behavior change is hard and just giving people information is not usually sufficient to change their behavior because, Mm -hmm. you know, to change your behavior, you have to deal with the reasons for not changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the definition of ambivalence is in the coaching fr- perspective is when you're ambivalent about something, you have just as many reasons for not changing as you do for changing. And so mm-hmm. the first step is to understand what those reasons are for not changing. So why is it that I'm so resistant to starting meditation practice or even just taking more time to rest or getting another hour or two of sleep? Well, mm-hmm. the answer might be, I'm busy all day and then I'm, you know, getting dinner ready for the kids and I got to get them down in, in, into bed. And then, you know, the, the only time I have to check my email or, you know, do something for myself is between nine and 11 PM at night. So, so that's, that's why I'm not going to bed two hours mm-hmm. earlier, you know? And if, if you just tell someone go to bed earlier and, and you don't <laughs> really, you know, elicit what those reasons are and then work with them to help find other solutions to that, you know, mm-hmm. meet other ways of meeting that need, for example, you know, uh, carving out some time earlier in the day to check email or, you know, whatever the solution might be, then, then there's not going to be any pot, you know, any shift in, in, cha- in, in change there. So that's one thing is, and, you know, whether you work with a health coach or just learn more about behavior change yourself and you're, you're doing it yourself, it's really important to understand how to successfully change behavior. It's something none of us are really taught in school. And there's a lot of myths out there about how that works, which usually just amounts to more lecturing, more, uh, you know, more <laughs> providing of information and, and, and none of that really works. The, the second thing, I mean, I do is kind of what we're doing now where I just really educate my patients mm-hmm. about the importance, uh, how stress affects the body. Cause mm-hmm. I think people have kind of a nebulous idea. Oh, stress is bad. Yes. Of course. Everybody right. knows that. But if I explain studies or, you know, specific examples of how mm-hmm. I've seen stress impact people and how I've seen stress management impact people in a positive way that often helps open up the door to understanding that, you know, this is something Mm -hmm. that's important and deserves equal attention. Um, And then, you know, this, this kind of gets back to behavior change, but I think it's really important that people, we have a tendency, this is uniquely American. It's not only American, but to uh, 
and I'm sure your, your listeners will relate again. It's like, okay, if we're going to meditate, then I'm going to start with an hour every day yes, or going two, all out. You know, hour <laughs> twice a day, you know, because yeah. if, if some is good, more is better. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm a high achiever, so I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And that's mm-hmm. the strategy that's almost certainly doomed to fail in most cases. And so there's a saying in the, in the coaching world, behavior change, um, shrink the change, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, a lot of apps that people use for meditation, like calm or headspace, fortunately incorporate this kind of methodology mm-hmm. where, you know, they start you out with two or three minutes a day yeah. and then there's gamification and, you know, they'll help you to sort of gradually increase that over time. So I think mm-hmm. any new change that we're making, um, we need to keep that in mind that that's going to be the most successful way of doing it. That's great. And um, this reminds me of something you mentioned a little bit earlier about the stress response, having an addictive quality to it. Um, And obviously that can sometimes make it harder to overcome like any addiction. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I mentioned the increased blood flow to the brain. Uh, We can, in, in a stressful situation, we can think, uh, you know, if it's, if it's overwhelming, it will, it will, go too far where we mm-hmm. can't think at all. We just mm-hmm. get frozen and can't perform. Mm-hmm. But if it's, you know, not a super overwhelming stressor, we might be able to think more clearly. We might become more efficient in our actions. And again, these are just evolutionary mechanisms designed to help us survive a threat. Cause in a, in, a, in an acute threat situation, we would need to come up with solutions quickly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, so yeah, that, that can be addictive um, for, for people to be in that situation and, a classic example might be procrastinating for mm-hmm. uh, an exam or something like that is like, you know, we can't kind of get it together to study or prepare, but in that last minute, we're like, okay, got to do it. We've got that deadline looming and now we're just going to bang it out. Um, yeah. So I think the, the answer to that for me has been finding other ways to achieve that same level of mental clarity, uh, but ways that are more sustainable over time and don't have negative impacts. And so, mm-hmm. so, uh, for me, that's been meditation and mindfulness practice and, um, you know, getting enough sleep, uh, mm-hmm. since lack of sleep erodes, uh, cognitive function, probably more than just about anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, those two things and, you know, getting the right amount of physical activity I would, uh, along with diet, like those four pillars, I have no complaints with like, I, my, you know, my, my cognitive, uh, function is, is as good as I want it to be. And, Mm -hmm. and it can sustain it. I can sustain that effort over a long period of time. So I think it's, 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 um, trying to create a more longevity in that kind of response than depending on the a good analogy would be like coffee or adrenaline boost. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if yeah. like we fully depend on coffee or any other stimulant to, to, to get us into that place, then what happens inevitably over time is that that stimulant becomes less and less effective. We at that, at a given dose, we need more and more of it. And therefore we start experiencing more and more of the side effects that are caused by that stimulant. And mm-hmm. it, at some point we crash. So we want to try to avoid that cycle. That's a great analogy. You mentioned that you do have a lot of patients who do CrossFit. Could you just give us sort of a general example of how you might see this manifest in someone who is doing CrossFit? So like a typical patient, what other things might be going on in their life and how this would start to manifest in symptoms? 
Yeah, I think it's good to even to go back and and um, think about the bank account analogy mm-hmm. or um, the battery analogy here because uh, we have a certain amount of metabolic reserve and a certain amount of resilience. So resilience is the short-term capacity to respond to changes in physiological needs. So mm-hmm. stressors essentially. Metabolic reserve is our long-term capacity. So you might think of that as like, you know, resilience is, is sort of the metabolic reserve is like the holding tank, mm-hmm. uh, our, you know, the deeper reserves that we can draw from. And then resilience is, is a, our sort of like active, more active uh, thing that we draw on a day-to-day basis. If you have to consider the total amount of stress in your life. And this, this can sometimes be referred to as allostatic load. Mm -hmm. So, um, what are all of the withdrawals that are happening? So imagine a typical per, you know, let's say a typical patient, let's say, uh, uh, a mom who is also working outside of the home, who's got two or three young kids and, um, also dealing with like a Hashimoto's, so, you know, autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. So you've got stress of a, of a chronic health condition. You've got stress of having young kids. You've got stress of having a, a job to balance, uh, you know, outside of the home on top of the young kids. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, she's in that situation I mentioned earlier, where the only time she can get anything done for herself is between nine and 11 or 12 at night. So she's, mm-hmm not going to bed until 11 or midnight and she's getting up at five or six to, you know, know, help get the kids ready for school. Um, Then let's say on top of that, there's, you know, maybe she's running her own business and there's some financial stress associated with that or some stress in a primary relationship. So all of those are withdrawals on the bank account. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to deplete the resilience and the metabolic reserve over time. And then on top of that, you add, a really challenging physical stressor like CrossFit training. Mm -hmm. And uh, on top of the already existing high level of background stress, you're adding another stress, which in a different situation, which, you know, I'll I'll come Mm -hmm. back to in a second, could be positive and adaptive, Mm -hmm. might not be too much in that situation. But when you layer that on an, you know, a situation where there's already depleted resilience and metabolic reserve because of all of the other stressors that are contributing to allostatic load, then that becomes a problem. And this can explain why you could take 10 people doing the same exact CrossFit routine, you know, in a week, and you could see mm-hmm. 10 different responses to mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe three or four will end up overtrained, you know, three or four will, will, will keep progressing and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll be thriving and doing great. And then maybe two or three will be somewhere in the middle where they're, they're plateauing, not really making progress, but they're not experiencing, you know, significant effects of overtraining. So mm-hmm. I think the difference that we see there is directly related to the background allostatic load and how mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get, how CrossFit gets layered or any other physical activity gets mm-hmm. layered on top of that. And what are some of the symptoms that someone in that situation where they are starting to get into the overtrained category might start to experience? Uh, again, often some, of uh, you know, from a performance perspective, you'll see often a decrease in performance. So whether mm-hmm. that's a plateau or whether that's an actual decline 
in performance, if the overtraining is severe enough, you might start mm-hmm. to see that show up in, in the actual activity itself. And then on top of that, uh, you know, the next thing that I would see, and it doesn't always happen in this exact progression, but, mm-hmm. uh, dis- disruption in the quality and duration of sleep. So, mm-hmm. um, that's of course, apart from how, how much time someone's actually spending in bed, but like when, when they do get in bed, they're not yeah. having the rest restful and restorative sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would also, uh, often start to see, uh, you could see symptoms like palpitations or, uh, uh, you know, jitteriness, um, which mm-hmm. are, you know, that the nervous system response, you can see, uh, um, anxiety, depression, uh, mood swings, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive decline is a huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual dysfunction is another big one. Um, again, from an evolutionary perspective, if the body's under significant amount of stress, then, and the fight or flight system is getting activated, then resources will be diverted away from the reproductive or endocrine system, uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is the one I already mentioned, which is that, um, in an, in the body's way of dealing with stress, if there's a stress present, it's not concerned about long-term reproduction. It's prioritizing everything that it thinks is necessary for survival. So, mm-hmm. so those are going to be different systems. The second reason is that if the environment is stressful and the body senses that, then is that really the best time to bring a child, a baby mm-hmm. uh, into the world? That might be dangerous mm-hmm. again. And, and the body, you know, we, our bodies are, our, our, uh, evolution is the imperative, right? Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you know, reproduction and, and, and successful reproduction and, and the, the, um, baby surviving into reproductive age is, is like the prime directive, so yeah. to speak. So, <laughs> so anything that would threaten that, you know, the body might say, ah, this is probably not such a good time. So you'll see, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to call it infertility in the sense mm-hmm. of like anything permanent, but you'll see mm-hmm. like difficulty conceiving, or mm-hmm. you'll see decrease in sex drive. Uh, uh, you'll see sexual dysfunctions of all types. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can start to see uh, gastrointestinal issues, like I mentioned. So uh, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, or loose stool, uh, abdominal pain, all kinds of stuff related to the, to the mm-hmm. GI system. Yeah. You can see what we talked about before related to the immune system. You could see mm-hmm. increasing the number of colds and flus you're getting or inability to get over the colds and flus, or you could see onset of, you know, autoimmunity or trigger exacerbation of existing autoimmune conditions. So you can really just kind of go through each yeah. system of the body and see, and, 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 you know, check off the, the various symptoms that can occur. Mm-hmm. Skin, skin issues is another one that's the skin is oh, the yeah. largest organ system of the body. And if we have a disruption in our immune function or our gut function, then that will often show up on the skin. Um, so that can be one of the most visible, uh, manifestations. Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't touched on, I don't think quite yet is also, um, like caloric restriction. So I think uh-huh. oftentimes I see, um, especially women who maybe are frustrated, they're working out really hard, but they're not losing weight. And so they end up not eating as much. And then that can sometimes even exacerbate the problem. Yes. Glad you brought that up. Cause that's another stressor. Mm-hmm. So caloric restriction is a stressor and that's why it can sometimes have positive, you know, I'm sure you've talked about intermittent fasting and fasting and the benefits that mm-hmm. that can have. Um, 
And the reason that, that that's true is because fasting or caloric restriction is a stressor. If that stressor is occurring in the context of a full bank account mm -hmm. or a full battery, then it will typically have a beneficial effect. But if that stressor is being laid onto this background of a lot of other stressors that we talked about, let's say that hypothetical woman mm -hmm. that we were talking about, then it's going to have a, a, a negative effect. And, and when people out, you know, will often ask me like, is intermittent fasting a good idea for everybody? Uh, no, it's not like in mm -hmm. that situation with that person, hypothetical per, uh, woman that I was talking about, I would not recommend intermittent fasting or any form of caloric restriction in, in that setting, because you're just pushing that you're just, that's another withdrawal on the bank account. And, it, and, uh, especially if you're doing intense glycolytic activity, uh, like CrossFit that would probably demand more calories rather than less then you can get into a really tricky situation. And, and what's just, just, um, can be deceiving about it is some, sometimes people might be either not losing weight or even gaining weight. In, in, in that scenario. And it's really difficult to figure out what's going on there. Um, but I think what, what we know can happen is the body, when, when you go into a caloric deficit, there are three mechanisms that are engaged to protect us from starvation. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, nobody's going to start, like, we're not ta talking about starving now in the modern world, but right. the body doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. the, all the body knows is there's a caloric deficit. And from an evolutionary mm -hmm. perspective, that would trigger these mechanisms to protect against starvation. So one is that we stop, we burn fewer calories when we're just at rest. So mm -hmm. just sitting in a chair, you start burning fewer calories than you would if you weren't in a caloric deficit. The second reaction is that uh, you, you start extracting more calories from the same amount of food that you eat. So mm -hmm. you can eat the identical amount, but you're actually harvesting more calories from that amount of food. And then the third mechanism is that you will experience a, a, a subtle and generally imperceptible increase in appetite in order to try to compensate for, mm -hmm. for that. And so then pe some people may start eating a little bit more, but not even be aware of it. So mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a, a crucial point and, and it's something, you know, making sure that you're getting enough calories for the amount of physical activity that you do and the amount of carbohydrate for the type of physical activity mm -hmm. that you do is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think hard, it, it involves a lot of trust too, because it's so counterintuitive for people to think, gosh, I keep gaining weight and I don't understand, but in order for me to actually start losing weight, I need to eat more or give my body more of what it needs so it can come out of this stressful fight or flight, um, state. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, it does trust is a good word, you know, trusting your body, trusting mm -hmm. that you might even have to go through a period of adjustment, you know, mm -hmm. like there's, there's a period of time often where it's, it's, this goes back to your question about how I work with people. Um, you know, for people who have been competitive athletes or who are, you know, really active recreational athletes, you know, mm -hmm. CrossFit, whatever it is, the idea of like rest and taking time off is so mm -hmm. foreign and so, you know, yeah. so difficult for them to contemplate. And so sometimes I'll give them a book called rest, uh, mm. 
you know, okay. we, uh, can, we can link. Yeah, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> Sounds uh, like a good one. The most creative title, but um, <laughs> it gets right gets to the point, point across. Yeah. <laughs> gets the point across. And it's basically, um, uh, and a, a whole, uh, book about why it's important to rest and why rest is critical mm-hmm. and how some of the most successful and productive people that we know about through history, whether they were mm-hmm. artists or scientists or athletes, athletes or, you know, other types of high achievers, um, really, um, valued rest and made it Mm -hmm. an important part of their, their lives. And, and that rest, um, you know, one way to think about it is it's, it's the fallow period before the harvest. Like Mm -hmm. if if you're in the farming metaphor, you can't just keep harvesting over and over and over again, the soil will get depleted and, you know, that, that will, that will, uh, not end well. So you have to have that fallow period where the field is laying fallow and essentially resting and rejuvenating. And so, you know, we'll have those conversations and then I will often actually prescribe rest, you know, like you got to take some time off sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's not forever, you know, don't Mm -hmm. freak out. And like, this doesn't mean that you'll never be able to do the same level of activity again. And, Actually, I would argue, I argue that you'll, you'll get back to the level of performance that you want to achieve faster by mm-hmm. taking time off than you will if you just try to limp along and, conti- and if you're mm-hmm. continually depleting the bank account, then you're actually going to make the problem worse and worse and worse. And then the period of rest that you'll eventually have to take will be probably externally imposed, Mm -hmm. meaning it won't be a choice anymore. You'll, you'll end up in some, Mm -hmm. yeah, crash and burn. And, and you, the damage could be, if not permanent, you know, lasting or significant and take you much, much longer to recover from at that point. So let's not let that happen. Let's, you know, head it off um, before that happens and do some strategic rest and and replenishment and rejuvenation before that happens. And, you know, is that a hundred percent successful? No. Um, You know, some people will hear that and just do it anyways. And, you know, Right. But, but I, but it's, it's mostly successful. Like most people are able to hear that and and make Mm -hmm. those shifts. Yeah. Sometimes we as humans need to learn the lesson the hard way sometimes, but whatever we can do to, to prevent that. And I think two important concepts that you brought up there, one being looking at high performers. And I think oftentimes that's what can be misleading for people is when we see these high performers, we think we have certain ideas in our head about how we think they are and how we think they must live their lives. Um, and try to apply that to ourselves. But if you look at, you know, for, for the CrossFit example, you look at the top CrossFit athletes, yes, they are training five, six, seven hours a day, but they're also resting a lot. You know, that's what they're doing during the day. And then they're sleeping nine, 10 hours a night. They're doing a lot of things for rest and recovery when they're not training. And for people, you know, recreational CrossFitters, that's important to note, like maybe, you know, pushing it harder because that's what you see the top athletes doing is not necessarily going to have the same response in us. If we are also working and having families and doing all these other things and not sleeping enough and having this other allostatic load. So that was, I think an important point. Um, and then yeah. also oh, go ahead. No, please. Um, also just this point about trying to address it early and having, you know, the earlier you address it, I mean, obviously ideally you can prevent it by just managing your, your stress load, 
Um, but if the earlier you address it in the cycle, the more quickly your body's going to respond and heal and get you back to where you want to be. Um, so that's if you definitely can talk, true. Yeah, ounce if you of prevention can talk about, is worth a pound of cure. You know, <laughs> yes. that's a, one of the most true sayings ever, uh, particularly in relation to health. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I think sometimes also one of the hardest things. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, because you, you until you've the, experienced it. The, the book, the rest book is really good for that reason. Mm -hmm. Like they talk, I, I can't remember the, the name of the specific musician, but there was actually a comparison between two um, like world-class violinists, um, you know, uh, at, okay. that, are, that are performing at like the highest possible level. And one would was like practicing eight hours a day, like never stopping, never resting and just kind of reached a certain point and didn't you know, mm -hmm. move beyond that. And then this, the other one was, you know, definitely practicing, but also like took lots of time to rest and time mm -hmm. away from the violin and, you know, periods of like spend time outdoors and, you know, they wouldn't come back to it refreshed and, you know, able mm -hmm. to perform better and, and was, you know, like one of the top concert violinists in the world. And so there's lots of stories like that in the book that, that I think are, helpful for people who kind of are skeptical of the idea that rest is, has any value at all. Mm -hmm. that, that's a very cultural no notion in our society too, like the Puritan, you know, it was mm -hmm. Puritanic uh, work, work ethic. And um, this, all, we even have sayings like I'll rest when I'm dead, you know, right. <laughs> which is right. like, okay, well, you'll die a lot sooner and you'll have a more chance right. to rest in that case. So, right. so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a good thing to be aware of that, like the, there's a value for rest just for rest sake, but rest mm -hmm. is also the conduit to better performance, better productivity, you know, uh, more joy, more pleasure mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, all the things that we want more of in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know we just have a couple of minutes here to wrap up, but if you could just touch on sort of high level overview of how you would diagnose HP axis dysfunction. And just some of the other terminology that's thrown around where people talk about things like adrenal fatigue and how this is different. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is a con rather convoluted and somewhat controversial topic in, in the integrative Very controversial, medicine world. yes. It's not controversial in the scientific community. No. <laughs> like, they look at adrenal fatigue and they're like, what are you talking about? There's, you know, there's, so um without getting too technical, the, the concept of adrenal fatigue was that the adrenal glands would become exhausted and unable to produce cortisol or DHEA, which are, you know, the primary adrenal hormones. And you get this sort of flat line. If you, if you do like a saliva cortisol test or, mm -hmm. or saliva test for DHEA, you see just kind of flat production of cortisol instead of mm -hmm. this nice rhythm that you're supposed to see. Um, there are lots of problems with that. Some are get really deep in the weeds and I won't get into, but the, the gist of it is that um, although that can happen in a very small minority of cases, most people mm -hmm. who are suffering from the impact of stress actually have high cortisol levels rather than low cortisol. And uh, even when people do have low cortisol levels, it's not generally because the adrenals are unable to produce cortisol. It's because they're not getting the right signals from upstream. So from mm -hmm. the hypothalamus or the pituitary glands are not sending the right signals or because the cells 
themselves in the body become resistant to the effects of cortisol. So this is, you could call cortisol resistance, which is very similar to the concept of insulin resistance, mm -hmm. where there's enough cortisol being produced, but the cells aren't sensitive to it. So you're not actually getting the benefits or the, mm -hmm. the impact of cortisol. So kind of like that uh, caffeine response. Exactly. Yeah. The body's mm -hmm. like shutting down. That's too much cortisol. We need to protect mm -hmm. ourselves from it. So yeah. So for, for measuring, um, HPA axis dysfunction, the gold standard test is, uh, the cortisol awakening response test. So mm -hmm. this is something that until fairly recently was, was mostly performed in this by scientists who are studying HPA axis dysfunction. Now there are diff, uh, several labs, um, mm -hmm. that offer this testing. And, uh, essentially what you're doing is you're measuring, cortisol response shortly after you wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. So when you open your eyes in the morning, light hits the retina mm -hmm. and then uh, activates the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that should trigger uh, cortisol production. And in fact, in the first half hour after we open our eyes, we should experience 50% of the total cortisol production that we're going to get during the day. So it's an enormously important period. Mm -hmm. That first initial half hour and 45 minutes. Um, and, uh, cortisol has a diurnal rhythm, which means it should be produced at different amounts at different times a day. So you should have a big spike in the morning when you wake up and it should gradually taper off. Melatonin is the opposite. It should be uh, low in the morning when you wake up and then gradually increase and it kind of goes in opposite direction to cortisol. So, um, the cortisol awakening response will, will, you'll get several cortisol readings right in that initial period. There's also a four point uh, saliva cortisol test where you can um, get, you know, readings throughout the day and you can see if your mm -hmm. cortisol is going too high at night. Um, I also will use urine uh, cortisol testing because you can get some of the metabolites of cortisol that can give you interesting information that you can't get from saliva alone. Um, I don't think blood testing for cortisol is very helpful because as I mentioned, cortisol should, you know, be changing throughout the day. And then, and, and, and we want to know what's happening in a very short period of time, mm -hmm. like within the first hour after waking up, mm -hmm. you're not going to send someone to a lab <laughs> and get four blood draws, you know, during right. that period of time. And it wouldn't even show up that quickly in the blood, anyhow, the changes. So, um, saliva and urine, testing still uh, are the best way of assessing cortisol uh, levels in the HPA axis. Um, serum, D like blood testing can be helpful for DHEA uh, mm -hmm. as, as saliva can be and even urine. Um, but I think cortisol is, is generally more helpful as an indicator of what's going on because there are other things that can affect DHEA levels as well. Mm -hmm. And then just to sort of wrap up and summarize, you know, if someone is, has signs of HPA axis dysfunction or is diagnosed, then the treatment really is what we've been talking about is rest, right? Allowing the body to recover, get out of that fight or flight mode, resting more from exercise, getting more sleep, yeah. mindfulness, meditation, all those things, which obviously can be hard. And probably the time duration of, of how long that rest needs to be probably correlates to how bad the dysfunction was or how long you know, exactly. You waited to yeah. start to address it. I mean, I would say that this is kind of goes back to what we've been talking about all along. Yes, there are absolutely 
herbs and nutrients that we can prescribe. And I do prescribe to assist in regulating the HPA axis. So these are adaptogenic herbs that many people have heard of like rhodiola or uh, Eleutherococcus, which is Siberian ginseng, or, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, cordyceps. Those are just a few examples. And then think, you know, nutrients like uh, phosphatidylserine can be helpful when cortisol is high. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always tell people that you cannot supplement yourself out of <laughs> HPA axis dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, if all you do is rest, you'll, you'll still, you'll get there. And, mm-hmm. you'll, and if, if, but if all you do is supplement, you will not get there mm-hmm. uh, no matter how much, how many supplements you take. So we resting and, you know, stress management and stress, uh, mitigation is the starting place. And then, yeah, sure. We'll layer on the, the botanicals and the nutrients on top of that to accelerate the healing process and, and, you know, strengthen resilience and metabolic reserve. Um, but you can't get there just by doing those things without addressing the behavioral issues that led to the problem in the first place. Because again, if you're still just making more, way more withdrawals than deposits, then mm-hmm. you're going to continue to be in debt, basically <laughs> the way to right. put it. And what a great, you know, example of functional medicine, right? If you don't address the root cause, you're not going to be able to fully get rid of the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Um, I usually wrap up with three questions, but I'm going to save those for our next conversation because I know we're out of time, Um, but I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Julie. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.